Hey guys, welcome back to the Inflammation Nation. I'm actually re-recording this episode. I uh, originally recorded this when we were traveling from Newfoundland in eastern Canada back down to Florida, and my internet connection was so spotty uh, that the quality of the audio was absolutely terrible. So my apologies if you tried to listen to that initial episode. I'm sure it was not the most pleasant thing. So we're all settled back in Florida again, and I got back to my normal um, technology. So today should be quite a bit better. So what are we talking about? We're talking about stool testing. And this is part two of um, a summary of the labs that I would spend my own money on. And of course, we're talking about stool testing today. This is part two of that. And I just want to do a super quick review of last episode and some of the key takeaways, because I do think that some things are important to repeat. One of the major points from our last chat is that you don't always have to do stool testing to commit to doing a gut protocol. Uh, sometimes it's just clear and it's obvious that you need to go through a gut protocol. But if you don't do a stool pretest, the question then becomes, well, when are you done? And there's para- power in the clarity that information brings. And, and if you decide, or you and your functional medicine doctor, that's helping you decide to not pretest and you decide to just go into a gut protocol, then you have to post-test because you need to know when you're done. And so you're either doing a pre-test, a protocol, and then a post-test, or you're assuming that you have a problem, you launch straight into a gut protocol, and then know at some time in the future you're going to pull the trigger, and you'll do a post-test to see where you are, and then you make more decisions at that point. The other thing that I want to point out from our last chat is that technology matters. There's a lot of docs out there that are using outdated stool testing technologies. That doesn't mean that you you can't get good or actionable information from those tests. It just means that it might, might not be the most accurate or most sensitive and specific test that you could get. And we talked about how we're at the point now where we have uh, DNA and PCR-based testing for the different microorganisms that might be in your gut. And that's far more sensitive and specific than the old school culture and microscopy that a lot of labs are still using. Um, But honestly, most labs, even those using older technology, are going to do a fair job. Some do a better job, and that's just the way it is. And the test that I routinely use for my one-on-one coaching clients is called the GI MAP from a lab called Diagnostic Solutions. That's my preference. But honestly, if someone comes to me and they've had a test that they got from another reputable lab, maybe using older technology, I'm going to be perfectly fine with that. I'm not going to throw it out and tell them, hey, I know you just spent some good money on this other test a month ago, then we need to do this new one and spend more money because it's a better test. No, I I certainly would never do that. That's just silly. Sometimes you just simply have to work with the information that you have But for the most part, uh, and there are many other labs out there in the functional medicine space that will give you a pretty decent analysis of things. And do you need infinite detail? No, you don't. You need a general direction. And and that's probably a very good uh, takeaway. And one of the things that that gets analyzed, of course, are um, true pathogens. And I say true pathogens in the sense of uh, that there are some things that really should never be in a healthy gut. And that's different than what we call potential pathogens. Potential pathogens are sometimes also called commensal organisms or even sometimes opportunistic organisms. They all refer to the same thing. A commensal organism is something that is a normal inhabitant of a healthy gut, and under most conditions, it doesn't do any harm, nor does it help 
us either. It's, it's kind of neutral. Uh, but given the opportunity that these otherwise neutral organisms um, can, or given the opportunity, these otherwise neutral organisms can overpopulate and then start behaving as if they are a true pathogen and start doing things that our gut doesn't like. Um, and I would rightly say that the most common type of infection is this overgrowth of otherwise neutral organisms, the things that tend to get out of hand rather than true pathogenic infections. Um, something, again, that should never be there. And, and the conventional medical world, gastroenterology, is really focused on acute situations and true pathogens, uh, whereas in a functional medicine context, we're typically dealing with chronic issues and we're dealing with overgrowth of things that are potentially pathogenic or, again, we call them commensal or opportunistic infections. Um, and I want you to know that these commensal organisms that are potentially pathogenic, are they're part of your microbiome, but they're not part of your microbiota, which means we need to clarify that since most of us, including myself, quite often misuse the word microbiome. Not that it's going to make all that much difference in the long run, but most people will recognize the word microbiome and then think probiotic, right? These are the healthy bacteria that we want to have in our gut because they do good things for us. But technically the word microbiome includes all of these otherwise neutral commensal organisms that are opportunistic and have the potential to become let's say, infectious or harmful. That doesn't mean that we need to train ourselves to switch the words that we use to refer to our beneficial bacteria. I continue to use the word microbiome incorrectly myself because that's the word, that's just what the word has come to mean. And, but just know that technically your microbiome, it, it's really the whole kit and caboodle. It's not just the good stuff. Most of the labs that serve the functional medicine world are going to give some analysis of the presence of true pathogens as well as an analysis of these potential pathogens, which are, again, really opportunistic commensals. And now we're at a place in time where labs are cropping up that actually can give you a very detailed analysis of your microbiome. And they advertise direct to consumer where you can just go online and buy your own kit and they'll send you with the kit and you can send in your sample and get your own report without any healthcare practitioner being involved in all. And to be honest, I have mixed feelings about all of that, but nevertheless, it's advantageous if you're someone who likes to do it yourself. Um, and with your microbiota, like this is just a huge topic. It's a massive field of interest in research right now. Uh, and I believe that the top researchers in microbiome analysis are out of Harvard University and, and we're discovering new probiotic species all the time. And we're getting more data on probiotic species that we've known about for a long time. And this idea of testing your own probiotics um, on your own is brand new to the market, like just a few years old. And so you have companies like Viome is the one that comes to my mind that are happy to take several hundred of your dollars and send you the kit, do your stool sample at home. And then when they analyze the sample to send you a very complex breakdown of your probiotics, which would be great if the detail and the complexity of that report and that information actually led to something useful. And I say that for two reasons. Um, it, it's one thing to be able to test for something to a deep level of detail. But if the details that you get don't lead to anything practical that you can change, then what's the point? And that's what's happening right now in this sphere is that there's a big disconnect between what we can test for and what we can do about what we can test for. 
meaning that just because a lab says your X, Y, and Z probiotics are out of balance doesn't mean we know what that means to our gut health and to our overall health. And it doesn't mean that we know what to do about it. And since these labs are commercial entities, they're businesses with a product or a service to sell, these labs are routinely looking to create new products by looking at what piques people's interest and then designing tests to give information about these things that we're interested in. And there's a ton of interest in the microbiome right now, and, and rightly so. And part of this issue is that for many of the probiotic species that we can test for, we don't know what they do, let alone be able to specifically target increasing their population and supporting their health and the output of what are called postbiotics. And, and let me just define that because I'm not sure I did that in the last episode. Essentially, we have prebiotics, we have probiotics, and then we have what are called postbiotics. Everyone's familiar with the term probiotic. It's the healthy bacteria that we want to have in our gut. Um, and you may also have heard the term prebiotic, which is basically the stuff that we feed our probiotics. And that might be dietary fibers or fermentable compounds from fruits and vegetables, uh, grains in some cases, or it might come as supplement form. And it could be a different fiber type, whether that is something like FOS or fructooligosaccharides or chicory or inulin, might even be plant polyphenols. And that's another new area of research right now where we understand that probiotic health is not just about fiber, it's about polyphenols or chemical compounds that you find in plant and vegetable matter. But if we go back to this idea, this question, like what is a useful test? A useful test is number one, something that you can get and afford. Number two, something with which you can do something different after you get the information, something that's going to improve your lot or change what you want to change. And again, if all you get is a detailed breakdown of your microbiota and you see all these different species or subspecies that are deficient or insufficient, but if there's nothing you can do intentionally or knowingly to bring those levels up, then the test becomes impractical and useless. And quite often the recommendations are very generic. Like, hey, your microbiome is really bad. Eat more fiber, eat more fruits and eat more vegetables. Well, I probably could have concluded that just by reading a couple of articles or listening to a podcast that I really need to spend $300 for you to tell me to eat more fiber, eat more fruits and vegetables. But in some cases, like for example, with Viome, and I'm not bashing the company as a whole. I just don't think that certain things they do are really helpful for us. But a lot of times the, the testing is designed to sell you on the supplements that they also sell. <laughs> it's brilliant, actually. They, they design a test that basically overwhelms you with data, with details that are pretty much useless for the most part. And then they give you recommendations of tailor-made probiotics to fix the problems that they find on their own testing. <laughs> Seems like a little bit of a conflict of interest to me, but I digress just a little bit. Again, the whole point of this mini-series is to help you understand that there are some tests that I and others think are very important that should be included in, let's call it, tier one testing. But there are some tests that are almost completely impractical and useless, and sure, you can spend your money on them, and yes, you'll get a nice report, but it probably isn't going to lead into anything that's effective or efficient in terms of changing the outcome or helping you to get healthier. And in the context of this podcast, the outcome that you're looking for is for your gut to be healthy and all the things that come out of that. 
And the, and the best we can do these days in terms of microbiome testing, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but the best that we can do is to report on large groups or families of probiotics rather than to parse things down to these infinitesimal details. And we have to pay attention also to the relative contribution of these family groups as a whole. And this is, again, it's a problem I have with some of the detailed reporting that's happening in some of these direct-to-consumer labs. And I shouldn't say just that because a lot of docs use these types of, of tests as well. But, you know, let's say that you get a list of a couple of hundred different probiotic species and 11 of them, 11 of them are out of balance. But maybe those 11 <laughs> contribute less than 1% of your total microbiome. At that point, the response should be, well, who cares? Because it's only 1% of the total. It's really not going to shift my big picture if I change those 11 that are out of balance. I want, I want a lab to show me the gut bacteria that makes up over 90% of my microbiome, not the ones that account for a very small percentage. Show me the big picture. That's something that I can work with. And on that note, most of your microbiome is made up of two main families of bacterial yeah, I might call them super families, right? And these are known as bacteriodetes and Firmicutes. Yeah, who cares about the names? It's just these are the top level names of families and subfamilies of different probiotics. And within these two families, again, there are subgroups of other species, some of which might be in balance and some might not. So you might have a normal total amount of Firmicutes, but when you break it down to the next level, you see that there's a couple of things within that super family that are out of balance. But the further down in detail you go, the less of a connection there is between what you know and what you can do. We also have data right now that shows how your macronutrient profile of your diet will shift your microbiome in one direction or another, either towards these bacteria DTs or the Firmicutes. Some of these probiotics in your gut tend to respond better to diets that are rich in animal protein and fat while others respond more to carbohydrates. So just to be clear, it's not just fruits and vegetables that feed your microbiome, although they do feed part of your microbiome. Other parts of your gut bacteria thrive on animal protein and healthy fats. And, and that's why I'm saying that the most practical, practical and useful tests these days show us a top-level breakdown where we see maybe eight or 10, again, let's call them superfamilies, because we're talking big picture level here, under which there are different subspecies and other families. And to be honest, the part of this series is to help you get not get sucked into slick marketing because what these labs do is try to capitalize on two things. Number one is a high level of interest in something like the microbiome, which is then combined with a lack of information and understanding on the part of the people who are either ordering tests on behalf of other people or who are paying their own money to get their own testing done. Now, I realized that I, I didn't finish defining some terms, so let me start over with prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. We use prebiotics, either in diet or supplement form, to feed our probiotics, which are the actual bacterial organisms that live in our gut, and we want to feed them well to encourage them to create postbiotics. And postbiotics are things that our probiotics make when we feed them prebiotics. And these do good things for us. And there's many different things that um, the probiotics make, vitamins and minerals. But they also make things called short-chain fatty acids, things like butyrate, for example, which is a ketone. And you're probably familiar with that term. We make ketones both in our gut but as a, a, 
process of burning body fat. But these are in the gut, these ketones, these short chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. They feed our gut lining and prevent things or help heal from leaky gut. They also potentiate a specific type of immune cell called a regulatory T cell that helps to promote control over your gut-based immune responses. And so your microbiome in your prebiotics and your postbiotic production are very, very critical. Now, a lot of people fail in trying to heal their gut because they're just too focused on killing infections and they're not focused on restoring gut health in that bigger picture. And we see this all the time. And I'll say that I was guilty of making the mistake early in my career of doing natural medicine. You know, I, there was a time when I thought all I had to do was get rid of candida, just get rid of it or get rid of H. pylori and everything would be fine. And I was surprised when people started coming back maybe four months later, right back at square one when we started. And I started to realize that I was missing some steps. And again, it's about the bigger picture of restoring gut health and removing infections is just one part of that. Having a good microbiome is another part of that, but it's not just those two things. But just because you get rid of an infection doesn't mean you're finished. Because if you don't go to the next step of restoring total gut health, it just simply leads to a cycle of reinfection. Another key point, again, is prebiotics and probiotic supplements, as good as they are, um, they're great in the short term. But in the long term, you want your microbiome producing these postbiotics for you as a result of feeding it a good and healthy diet. And that doesn't mean just plant foods like everyone is saying these days. Some of the major species, like I mentioned a minute ago, that make up the largest part of your microbiome feed off fat and animal protein. And this is why some people can go on a carnivore diet and literally eat nothing but animal protein and fat, have zero carbohydrates, and be very healthy. And if you're not looked into the carnivore diet, you might want to look into it. It's the real deal. It's a good solution for some people, not all. Maybe we'll do a series on that someday. But I would propose to you that if somebody goes off carbohydrates altogether, like off all fruits, all vegetables, and adopts a diet that is strictly animal-based, and if they get better in general... It is at least in part because the diet created a favorable shift in their microbiome. There's likely other reasons as well, but that would be one compelling reason. And that would be for that person, right? Does it mean that everyone should be carnivore? Probably not. Just in the same way that I don't think everyone should be vegan. Absolutely not. Most people will do better with a balance of animal proteins and fats and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. But there will be some who benefit by shifting more to the extremes. Most of the stool tests that I've been using and others who practice like me do give you that top level view of your microbiota and they don't weigh you down in these useless details. More information is not always helpful. Another key point to understand is that, and I mentioned this already, retesting is important, right? I started out this episode talking about how you don't always have to do a stool test. But if you decide that you're going to do a gut protocol without the advantage and clarity that a stool test will give you, then you have to, at some point, do a post-test to know when you're done. And here's the difficult part. That is, in almost all cases, gut symptoms will resolve before balance and health is restored to the gut. Let me say that again because it's this important. It doesn't matter if you're a healthcare consumer or if you're a layperson with gut issues or if you're a healthcare professional listening to the podcast. Gut symptoms typically resolve before balance and health is restored to the gut. You need to know when you're done, and it's almost never when your symptoms are consistently under control. 
or you're asymptomatic. If you if you stop what you're doing, uh, if you stop what got you to the point where your gut is asymptomatic without finishing the job, you're going to end up back at square one. Nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants to go through a gut protocol and spend eight weeks, 10 weeks, 14 weeks or whatever, fixing their gut only to get back to week one. And so I would encourage you to understand that stool testing, while it does have its limitations, is in a pretty good place right now in terms of the information we get. As long as we're using good technology and as long as we're seeing enough but not too much of the bigger picture. And again, the bigger picture falls into several different categories. One is looking for true pathogens. Another is looking for potential pathogens or opportunistic infections. Another is to have that top-level view of the microbiota and, if possible, some kind of breakdown of some of the more important postbiotics like short-chain fatty acids. Now, having said that, I know I said I was going to talk a little bit about biofilm, but I'm watching the clock, and we're going to have to put that off to the next episode. So there will be a part three, stool testing as part of the labs that I would spend my own money on. Thanks for listening. One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy.